Well, today we are starting a new series here in this service. We are going to be looking at the, uh, the book of Philippians. Sorry, I'm looking for my clock so I can stay on track. So the book of Philippians was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul around the year 60 or 61, 62 AD, and Paul was in prison, most likely in Rome. Now, Philippians is a short book. There are but four chapters in it, but if you look throughout it, it is a source of just a wealth of amazing words from God and very often quoted verses um, come from Philippians. So we think of uh, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The list goes on and on. And for many people, uh, Philippians is a favorite book. It's a favorite book for many because of the joy that flows out of it. It's a favorite book um, because there are so many wonderful beloved verses within. Now, some other books, especially ones think of, say, like 1 Corinthians, um, there's a lot of correction. There's even rebuke within those letters as Paul is addressing some pretty major problems that the, the church was dealing with, some, some sin and such. But the book of Philippians um, is this great book of encouragement and it's also um, a book of, let's use the word edification. Now edification um, is a word that I don't tend to use all that much but sometimes you'll hear it in songs, you know, edify your church and things like that and you go, what the heck does edification really mean? Well, edification is a kind of a churchy word. Um, it means building up but teaching. It means kind of helping, to somebody, helping somebody to go along the right way. Um, it can involve bringing out their full potential. There's leading and there's teaching but it's less, it tends to be less about correction and scolding and more about encouraging and guidance along the way. Well, Paul, um, as you read the Bible, as you read Acts, as you read his letters and such, um, Paul was instrumental in the growth of the early church. Um, he, he came in after Jesus had already died and, and been resurrected, and, and he was instrumental in those early days of the church. He is often seen, you know, some will say, well, he was primarily a missionary. Some will say primarily he was a pastor or he was a theologian. He was all of those things, but I think something else that Paul was is I think Paul was also a great coach. If you have followed much um, basketball over the years, college basketball specifically, um, you know that two of the most well-known and winningest coaches in NCAA men's basketball are Bobby Knight and John Wooden. Bobby Knight, uh, three NCAA championships in 12 years with the Indiana Hoosiers, had a 73.5 winning percentage. John Wooden at UCLA, uh, 10 NCAA championships in 12 years, an 80% winning percentage. They were both highly successful. They would get great results um, on the court. You can see from all of their wins. Um, they both worked very hard. Um, but winning and hard work seem to be about where those similarities end. Their coaching style and their interaction with players, you could say they are polar opposites. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's interesting, you do, do a Google search on Bobby Knight and you're gonna find a lot of pictures like that. Um, now to say that Bobby Knight is infamous um, is an understatement. You know, people, if you're familiar again with basketball, you know there's times of him throwing the chair across the court and things like that. Um, but to say that John Wooden um, is loved, was loved and respected, and I forgot to bring in my prop. I have this little basketball that was signed by John Wooden. Um, he wrote a book for a, a publisher that my sister, actually I used to work there too, but my sister got me a John Wooden signed basketball, which is pretty awesome. But to say that he is loved and, res and respected is a huge um, understatement. Now, Bobby's temper on and off the court eventually cost him his job because his main method of coaching seemed to be yelling and criticism and even sometimes getting physical with players. Uh, he got plenty of wins, and some do respect his methods um, as effective, um, but he is overwhelmingly known as a bully. Now, Coach Wooden, on the other hand, is both highly successful and greatly respected, and a lot of that comes from um, his love for players and how much he poured into those players. Now, this isn't to say that John Wooden was 100% encouraging all the time and everything was, oh, you guys are so wonderful, you guys are, are so perfect. There were times when he did need to correct things. There were times, you know, when, when he's talking to, at that point, uh, you know, he's talking to Kareem back when he was um, Lou Alcindor. Um, you know, he's probably correct him, saying, here's, here's some things that you can do. So he did need to do that sometimes. But, but his goal was not only to win basketball, but was to help them to become great basketball players. Well, I have been um, a player. I've been a coach. I never played basketball. I'm terrible at basketball. You wouldn't guess from my height. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, but I've, I've been a coach. I've been a player. And I've been a parent um, to players. And one thing that I have learned is that good coaches don't just want to make you win. They want to help you be actually a better player. Great coaches want to help you be a better person. John Wooden's players knew that he cared about them. They knew that even when he was dealing with difficult topics, even when he was having to address some things that may have been tough and some corrections, he was trying to help them not only be better basketball players, but to be better human beings. Well, the Apostle Paul loved the church in Philippi. And his love throughout this letter just pours out onto the pages. There's many quotes that I, I kept pulling. Well, I like this one, I like this one. There's a lot of them. Um, one of the best ones is in the beginning, uh, Philippians 1, 7 through 8. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Think about getting a letter that says that to you. This is the letter that came to the church in Philippi. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter encouraging them to be the church that God has called them to be, to be the individuals that God has called them to be. He's reinforcing the things that they're doing well, and there are many things that they're doing well, and he's saying, these are the things you guys are doing great. I've heard about it from other people. I know how faithful you are. It's a letter where he's reminding them of the truth of the gospel. There's this amazing kind of poem that's in the second chapter that talks about who Jesus is and tells the story of Jesus. It's also a letter that is preparing them for the challenges they're facing right then, but also more challenges that lie ahead. Let's think a little bit about the city of Philippi. Well, today, there are about 900 residents in the village of Philippoi, 
They live about 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Uh, they are currently about 50 miles south of Bulgaria. Now, at the time that Paul wrote the letter to the church in Philippi, they were a city of about 10 to 15,000 people. Uh, Philippi was founded around the year 360 BC, um, and then four years later, it was captured by the Macedonian king Philip II, so took the name Philippi. And he took it because it was a valuable city, it was along a trade route, um, but it was also close to some gold mines, so he wanted to have control of that city there. It was um, tactically a very good city for, for him to have. Well, 200 years later, um, Rome took over, and the city kind of lost prominence. It went from being a very important city in the region to just being kind of another, another city, and it wasn't really talked about a whole lot. Um, that was until Julius Caesar um, was murdered in 44 BC um, by Brutus and others. You know the story, you know, et tu Brute, and when Brutus came in and, and, and killed Julius Caesar, well, he was on the run later, and then that came to an end. Um, in 42 BC with the Battle of Philippi where Brutus was finally defeated there. Well, 10 years later, uh, the, the, the Caesar at that point, Caesar Augustus, made Philippi a proper Roman colony. And he sent, what he did was he sent these Roman soldiers, he had all these guys who had kind of retired from the military, and he said, we really need to build up the city and our control there. And he sent a number of his soldiers and their families to settle that city there, and they lived among the Greek citizens. And it was kind of about a 50-50 split between Roman and Greek um, citizenship. Well, by the time Paul wrote this letter, it was about 100 years later, and Philippi really had become a, uh, a Roman stronghold, both in military might for who they had there, but also in, in Roman influence. It was kind of known as a, as a little Rome. It was, they had more uh, Roman architecture. There was the administration and the governance there. Uh, the language, the common language there was, was Latin instead of Greek. There was also great obedience and worship of the Caesar at that point, and if anybody remembers who the Caesar was at that point, the emperor of Rome was Nero, so this was not a good guy. And for a long time in Philippi, there were barely any Jewish people. There was barely any influence from, from Israel there, and, and, and we find that out in just a bit because they didn't even have enough people to have a synagogue because most cities would have a synagogue, but you had to have at least 10 Jewish men in order to have a synagogue. Well, they didn't even have that. So it was a very Roman um, and very strong Roman city there in Philippi. Well, in Acts chapter 16, um, we read about Paul's missionary journey. It's Paul's second missionary journey. He's making his way kind of around the Mediterranean. He's sharing the gospel um, with people. And he came up to a point and he said, well, I think I wanna go south, and I'm gonna go into what we call the province of Asia. It's not the Asia we would think of today, the province of Asia back then, um, Colossae and such, and he was gonna go there, and God said no. Well, then he decided, well, I think I'll, I'll go north, up to Bithynia, Pontus, that kind of area up there, and guess what, God again said, no, that is not what I have for you. So they traveled west to Troas, or as we would possibly know it, the city of Troy. So they showed up in Troas, and they waited. They waited to see what God had in mind for them. Listen to what happened in Troas in Acts 16, 9 through 10. It says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So Paul and Silas and some others got into a boat and they headed west and they made their way over to Philippi. They landed there and they went about 10 miles in, 10 miles into Philippi. Now normally when um, Paul would show up in a city, he would, he would go to, um, he would find wherever the local synagogue is and he would go into the synagogue there and he would, he would talk to people about how that, that Jesus is a Messiah because that was the big thing when you're talking to Jewish people is he wants to say this, that Jesus is a Messiah. So he would go and he would find he would find the local synagogue. Well, the problem is, as we just said, there was no local synagogue there. There were not enough Jews to have a synagogue in Philippi. So Acts, um, later on a couple verses, Acts 16, 13 through 14 tells us that on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer, place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. So Paul and his friends, they show up in Philippi and it's already been kind of a strange journey to get there and even once they get into Philippi, they face an uphill battle when they arrive there. What they find is a small, essentially a small women's prayer group and it was only permitted outside of the city gates. They didn't just happen to meet outside of the city gates. This was a city that was very Roman and not very welcoming, not only to Christians, forget being welcoming to Christians, they weren't welcoming to, to Jewish people as well. So if you wanna meet, you have to meet outside of the city. So they had this small group of women meeting outside the city. And what's interesting, even about this group of women that are meeting outside the city, it refers to Lydia, this dealer in purple cloth, as she is a worshiper of God. So not only, she, she's a Gentile, is what that tells us. She's a Gentile who, who worshiped God, but she was not actually Jewish. So he starts off his church, instead of going and preaching to the, to the Jews that are gathered there, he, he preaches to these women, and he shares the gospel with Lydia and others. So listen to what happened here. Verse 14 to 15. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. (coughs) When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now for me, when I look at this, if you look at kind of the, the journey of Paul, you kind of read well, he went from this city to this city and he, and he traveled around and such. But what happened here when he arrived in Philippi is this is when the gospel first moved into Europe. So the first church that was planted in Europe was founded to a Gentile woman on the outskirts of the Roman city in a culture that ignored and belittled women that had no interest in worshiping the God of Israel and would never even dream of abandoning Caesar to follow a Jewish king. So again, it's an uphill battle for Paul in this church that he's trying to start there. It's this Roman city that wants nothing to do with them. It's among a, Gentile, a group of Gentile people and he starts off with women. Now for us today, we go, well, that's great. But back then, you start off the church with women and you go, well, don't you want people who have influence and people who are, who are seen as, as valuable in society? But again, that's not what God does. But God does great things. Well, the challenges continued. So in the town, there was this girl and she was a slave girl and she was possessed by a demon and this demon made it so that she could tell the future. 
So she went around and they were out there preaching and praying and such and they were over by the, over by the, the river there and this girl comes up and she starts yelling at them and, and talking to them and, and saying who they are and saying that they are, they are working for God and Paul gets sick of it and he finally just casts his demon out of the girl. Now you would think that okay, that can be the end of it um, but it wasn't because if you remember, she was a slave and as someone who was a slave, she is owned by somebody else and she was also a great source of income because with the spirit that she had, she could tell the future, so people would come to her and they would ask her to tell the future and then they would give money to her owner. Well, her owner was angry because of this loss of income. So they had Paul and his friends arrested and they were dragged before the authorities. And what's interesting is it says, what they said to the authorities was these Jews are causing problems. They're trying to make us break Roman law. So Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. But again, God had great plans for the people there. It just seems like everything is going wrong, right? It's the place they didn't want to go to. He wanted to go north, he wanted to go south. God said, no, go off to this place. He gets there and he finds very little foundation for a church. And then he gets arrested. But God had plans for the church in Philippi. So Paul and Silas are in prison. And what do you do when you're in prison? Well, you pray and you sing and people were listening. Prisoners were listening. So they're stuck in prison and they're sharing the gospel with lowly prisoners. Well, God causes an earthquake and the chains break and the doors open. Now, if you are a Roman jailer and the chains break and the doors open and everybody runs off, what's gonna happen to you? Yeah, you're a goner. You have failed at your job. You have failed Rome. You have failed Caesar. So this Roman jailer hears what's, what's happening and he is ready to run himself through with his sword, but Paul calls out. No, it's okay, we haven't gone anywhere. Then verse 29 through 34. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and his whole household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So we see God at work in some amazing ways. But God now has gathered this kind of ragtag, mismatched, weird group of people to start his church. It's not this unified, everybody's agreed, everybody's on the same page. You have some Gentile women. You have a Roman jailer and his family. And some scholars even say, you know, probably that slave girl, she was probably you know, tossed out by the owner, maybe she joined the church as well. She's no longer useful to her owners. But either way, this is this weird, odd, strange conglomeration of people in this, in this city which is very opposed to what they are trying to do. And this is how God started the church in Europe. So, to put this into kind of a modern way of thinking about it, think if you were Paul today, and, and right now is when Paul would go and, and he would go out and share the gospel. So you're traveling around, let's say, Eastern Europe, and you are spreading the gospel in Romania. You come to a point, you say, well, maybe I'll go south and I'll go to Greece. 
And God says, no. Okay, well, maybe I'll go north and I'll head to, to Moscow. No. So you go off to the Ukraine, and God tells you, I want you to go to Iran. So off you go, and you arrive in Tehran, and you find a small group of women praying outside the city. And that's where you begin the church until you're arrested for causing problems in the Ayatollah's regime. And that's a lot of what he was facing, right? He's going off to this place where people have no interest in it. This huge, strong, national thing of this is our religion, this is our faith, you have no place telling us who we should worship. You think the Ayatollah, you think Nero, you think of people who will do terrible things if you go against them. Paul and Silas faced huge obstacles in bringing the gospel to Philippi. But they went where God sent them and God did great things. So they stayed there for a bit. Some places they stayed for quite a while, but Philippi they did not. Soon God called them to move on. And this brand new little church carried on without them. And not only did they survive, they thrived and they were faithful. Now we know Paul came back at least one other time over the next decade to visit them, but it looks like from some other things that he probably came back a couple other times as well to visit his friends in Philippi. His love for them grew and their partnership in the gospel grew deeper. Now eventually Paul was arrested and he was taken to Rome and his friends in Philippi were worried about him so they sent Epaphroditus. They sent him with a gift. They sent him with, with money to help pay his bills. They sent him to go and support Paul in his time of need. So Epaphroditus spent a while with Paul and then Paul sent him back to his friends in Philippi and he sent this letter to them that we are reading. Now to us, Philippians um, is kind of a collection of some of the most powerful words ever written. But to these people, to the people of Philippi, it was a lifeline. It was a comfort to Paul's friends. They were anxiously awaiting news. They didn't know what was gonna happen. Was Paul going to live? Was Paul going to die? He's, he's awaiting this trial in Rome. But Paul says, don't worry about me. If I live, I get to carry on preaching. If I die, well, I get to go be with Jesus. See, when, when, when Paul wrote these words, when God gave Paul these words in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, it's not just a catchphrase. It's not just some positive thing that you can put on a little sticker. This letter was also a call on the people of Philippi, even in the most difficult circumstances, to trust in God's goodness. Because remember, these, these were people facing tremendous difficulty do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians was also a reminder of Paul's love for them. In 1, 3 through 5, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, one of the problems that we run into when we just look at two verses here, one verse there and such, is we completely lose the context. Now, right after Paul talks about his love for them and he says, I, I pray for you, I'm so thankful for you, 
I, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He then says what I believe is the heart of the letter. He said he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So if you look at Paul's letter over and over again, you see that Paul is completely blown away by their generosity. He talks about how, you know, nobody else sent anything, but you guys did. And you sent something again. You don't need to keep sending me things, I'm okay. But he's blown away by their generosity. He's grateful for their partnership in the gospel because not only are they giving things, but they are going out and they are sharing the gospel in a very difficult place in a very difficult time. He is overjoyed to hear about their faithfulness in God's word because he's, he's hearing from other people as well. I know that even when I'm gone, you're obeying what we've taught you. You're obeying the word of God. But his hope, his hope is not in their goodness. His hope is not in his teaching. His hope comes from the fact that God is faithful. The God who called them the one who began a good work and then so long ago, 10 years before, even longer than that, the God who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. What he was saying to them is that God is not done with the church in Philippi. And what he's saying to us is that God is not done with Faith Presbyterian Church in Germantown. If you look throughout this, this book, Paul has a lot of great advice for the people, a lot of great advice for them, a lot of great advice for us. But we can look at this book and go like, well, okay, then I'm supposed to be kind, and, and here's all the things, all the shoulds that I should be doing. But the greatest message he has for them, he says, you want, you want to get all this stuff figured out? I want you to have the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. Now again, that can become something that we just try really hard, and then I can have the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. But even, he's not even saying that. What he's saying to them is God started this amazing work in you. I want you to become more and more like him every single day. But it is God. He is the one who began a good work in you and he will carry it on to completion. I'm really looking forward to studying this book together. The more time I got to spend diving into it. It's always been, again, it's one of those books where you look at it and go, there's all these great quotes. There's so many wonderful things. There's such meat that's in there. But it is so cool when you see everything kind of coming together and you see the beauty of this letter and you see the goodness of God throughout it. So I am really looking forward to studying this book together and I pray that as we read it, we will be like the, like the Philippians. We will be encouraged in our walk with God. Pray that we would be built up, that we would be edified for the year that God has for us. Pray that we would be reminded of his great love for us in Jesus Christ. And that by his hand, not by our effort, but by his hand, we would become more like Christ every day, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am looking forward to reading this book further and studying your word. Lord, it is such a gift that you have given to us that we can read this letter that was written from Paul so long ago and this, this letter of encouragement, this letter of building people up. And Lord, that we can take that knowing that it wasn't just a letter written a long time ago by some guy, even a great guy, but it is the very word of God. Lord, that it is encouragement for us, that it is a reminder for us that it is a call on us to follow you. It is a call on us to be more and more like you, not by our power, 
but by your work in us. Lord, you have begun a great work in this church. And Lord, you will carry that on. Lord, we trust you. Lord, help us to be more like you. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.